Hello and welcome back to another episode of The Movies! Hello everybody, my name is Daniel Berrios, I'm your host tonight, and today we have yet another episode of In 4 Films. This is the show where I bring on film lovers and aficionados to talk about the movies that make them who they are. This can be their favorite movies, this could be movies that change the way they think about life or the art form or what have you. And today we have another friend on... And as we do in these things, I start with this intro. They hail from Boston, Massachusetts, with a bachelor's in English lit from Suffolk University. Can I can't do a Boston accent, but Suffolk? I don't know. We're gonna get Chris Evans or Carly to do it. Boston. 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 The clan chatter. They also have a master's MFA in creative writing from Emerson College. They write for the following. Slash Film as the editor, Den of Geek, Marvel.com, Daily Dead, Rue Morgue, CBR, and Dread Central. They host, co-host a horror podcast called Horror <laughs> Hangover, which if you haven't listened to, is fucking awesome. My friends, gals, ghouls, and badass days of the world, give it the fuck up for Chris Clark. What a lovely intro. Also, this is the first time in my life where I've had someone quote back to me my podcast's like tagline. And that is just amazing. Thank you. Thank you, gals, ghouls, aren't and badass days of the world. Aren't you <laughs> glad that you came up with it? As soon as I saw that, I'm like, oh, that's such a great little, like, hook. It's rings you in. I, I Thank you. I really appreciate that. I feel like I probably borrow stole Beloved from Elvira, who's always just like, hey, gals and ghouls. And uh, so I really got to credit Cassandra Peterson, who is amazing and my idol. But thank you. Thank you. Thank you. What a lovely introduction. And I'm so excited to be here. I also love the concept of the in four films format. Uh, so if I can play my little interviewer, which I, I do even when I'm being interviewed, uh, I would love to know when and how you decide on this format because it's so fun. I, it was so much fun being a part of this, thinking about what films to choose, why I'm choosing them, listening to other episodes where you did that. So I would love to hear thoughts on like how that came to be. I'm nervous now. <laughs> Shit. I'm not fucking hide in the corner. Uh, no, the in four mm-hmm. films no, thing no, no. happened as – an excuse for me to get to interview people that I admire and would like to hang out with IRL, but I can't. So that was me just going like, I always wanted to do an interview show. I've seen YouTubers talk with, I've seen YouTubers do it. I've seen other podcasters do it. And I was like, okay, but I got to have like this like film thing. Like, what would I do? I'm like, you know, I'm not going to go down Mm -hmm. the everybody's entire history. So in four films, that's just kind of, it's snappy. And no, it is not a total ripoff of the Letterbox thing. I know Letterbox does it. <laughs> I yeah. realized this after I've gotten a couple episodes in. But yeah, it was just a mm-hmm. four films, pretty concise. And it gives everybody a chance to really go wild and talk about the movies they love and just a wide variety of the movies they love. Like you'd think four films wouldn't really mm-hmm. be enough, but yet you get a real gamut mm-hmm. and a real sense of somebody's likes and uh the things that make them tick through just four mm-hmm. movies out there i love that i love that concept because i think that as someone who is like seeped into the world of like entertainment journalism film critique film reviews film interviews 
I often feel like it's so easy for critics to get jaded and to fall out of love with the things that brought them there in the first place. I feel like having spaces to promote the love of what they're doing is just like reconnecting not just the critics back to the work, but listeners back to the work as well. Because it's, I don't know if you feel this way, but I feel like there is this division. And I know film Twitter is like an easy way to talk about it, but to be a little bit more nuanced, I think there's definitely a division between like the way that general audiences talk about movies and the way that critics talk about movies. And I understand that to an extent because critics is like, it is your job. Uh, but I do feel like the love has been sapped out. Like it's just been like vampirically sapped out of a lot of critics. I'm just like, I don't want to read your writing because you're just going to make me feel bad. <laughs> like you're going to make me feel sad and bad. Even if your points are valid, it's like coming at it so hard. So like, I love that this format is like anti that. And through doing that, I actually think you can get some really good solid like discussions about film. So like very rad. Thank you. <laughs> we do this because we love this film first i mean i was gonna mention how much you hate tax season in the opening to this but like we wouldn't put ourselves (laughs) through like financial freelancer hell if in some way shape Mm -hmm. or form we didn't like this i know we're gluttons for punishment Mm -hmm. because of some of the movies we go see but at the same time like there's so much love to be had And it also is a good reminder for those who maybe still stuck up their own ass a little bit that ultimately Mm -hmm. you are the person sitting next to you. You are the kid watching the Super Mario Brothers movie with twinkles in his eyes because he just saw fucking Luigi do like a slightly higher jump than normal. You are also the dad in the back cackling at whatever the fuck Tom Mm -hmm. Cruise just did because you can't believe it happened. We are all the same in that sense we're equalized so it's good i think for us to talk about the things that really we love first of all and second of all the Mm. things that kind of brought us you know it's good if you're watching a bunch of movies in a row like it's really easy to get jaded and tired but it's going back to the movies that really brought you here that i think serve as a really good reset mentally and sometimes i need to do that Mm -hmm. with my things but i'm glad that you're able to get a similar kind of joy or uh, healing. I know that sounds kind of pre- like pretentious and weird, but like healing <laughs> out of this kind of shit. So yeah, let's figure out yes. the movies that you wanted to cover. And like oh, I mentioned in every episode, <laughs> everybody's different. No one's picked the same okay. movie. There's been a few people that have explicitly gone out their way not to select the same movies as other people. But whenever I get the mm. first like rough draft of the list, Everybody has something different. And I've done, you're like number eight of these so far. So we have Mortal Kombat (laughs) from Paul W.S. Anderson in 1996. SLC Punk from 98. James Mm -hmm. Merdino. Heathers from, I want to say, 89. Directed by Michael Wayne. 88, but close. And 88, (laughs) close. I've got my own fact checker. It's great. And then 1996's Scream. Directed by Wes Craven. So, where do we go first? I'm. I listened to the last time you had an for films guest on, and I'm just gonna steal their idea and let's start chronologically. So let's start out 1988. Heather's. You wanted to be a member of the most powerful clique in school. Dear diary, 
Heather said she teaches people real life. You were nothing before you met me. You were a Girl Scout cookie. Does it not bother you that everybody in this school thinks that you're a piranha? I could give a shit. Everyone just looked right at me. You a Heather? No, I'm a Veronica. I don't really like my friends. I don't really like your friends either. They're people I work with, and our job is being popular. Maybe it's time to take a vacation. I just killed my best friend. And your worst enemy. Same difference. Teen angst has a body count. This is a tragic thing. Hallelujah. We scare people into not being assholes. What did you say, dickhead? <laughs> I did not want them dead. You did too. Did not. You did too, not. Sir. Shut up. I love my dead gay son. Heather, this is the second time that I've watched this thing. I think the first time was just because I'd heard the references, like... It's the kind of influence on movies like Mean Girls that I unabashedly adore. Like, one of my favorite movies ever. And then the first time I saw this, I didn't really know what to make of it. Just because it's got such a... I, I, I guess a strange relationship between the hero and the villain. And then mm -hmm. as I go into watching it now... I kind of relish in the whole, I guess, pathetic nihilism of Christian Slater's character that mm -hmm. I think now it's starting to, like, make more sense as to, like, why are we doing this for what mental breakdown? Like, you see a lot more of a psychological breakdown through, like, a second viewing without you trying to figure out what's going to go on. Yeah, I think Heather's... It's so great for so many reasons because I also think that you couldn't have had Scream, which we'll talk about later, but you could not have had Scream without Heathers. You could not have okay. had Jennifer's Body without Heathers like or Mean Girls uh, because these okay. are movies that are satirizing the high school experience but through an obvious ad adult lens. Like the reason why like Winona Ryder's character is like <laughs> – so painfully pretentious is because you know there's a 30 year old in that chair <laughs> writing the version of themselves as a teenager uh and through that they're <laughs> implicitly they're satire right no matter what but like like going a little bit further you have the space and the time to process how like high schools are microcosms of society and the things that you can't necessarily combat as an adult like as we talked about I hate paying so many taxes as a poor freelancer. I can't fight the IRS today, maybe tomorrow. But you know what I can really like rile against? Like the social capital of like high school popularity, right? That's something where like 
it feels empowering. It feels cathartic to, to create this plot line about like, I'm going to take down the Heathers. I'm going to take down powerful figureheads in this film. And I think that is just so fun and so fantastic. And I think that's why it still hits for, I don't, I've no, I don't know if it will hit for people that didn't grow up in the eighties or nineties necessarily. But I think for us, it's very cathartic. And I really, really, really deeply love that it's not afraid to go dark uh, and have really hard to tackle subject matter that 100% I don't think they could do today. They like faked teen suicide. They like, this was pre-Columbine also. So like they had guns being used to kill teens that were just annoying characters. They're like, I don't like you. I'm going to make you kill each other. Like <laughs> these plot lines would, would not work today. It would, it would, we could not do it. But I think through doing that and like showing like outward aggression it just gave a voice to all these feelings you have as a teen and then later as an adult that like are messy and complicated and are fine to have. Um, and I think the reason why that's important is I think like later films like Mean Girls, although I love it, the worst we get is like hair pulling and like name calling, um, which is like we only let femmes be a certain level of violent before we have to pull them back and have like a group feel session as if like these feelings of like injustice just go away neatly, you know, like they don't, you right. just have to live through it and process through it. And I think the nice thing about Heather's is that like, it's messy, it's complicated. And at the end of the day, like JD is, is wrong. JD is wrong. But the seduction of JD's idea, like what if we could just make all the most important like popular uh societally accepted people just go away and we just live in our own like fringe society wouldn't that be so cool it's seductive to think about but like the actual practical applications of that is literally murder and gross and messy and you're like no i don't want i don't want that it's so, like the moral of the story that has like all these like horrific elements is like i should actually like talk to my neighbor and like not be an asshole and if you're an asshole like you cannot be one. I can steal the bow off your hair, Heather, and just like calm down. <laughs> like nobody has to be the queen bee. We can exist. And I just think that's like so beautiful while being so insane of a movie. <laughs> so my chart, that's my tirade on this. I deeply love Heather's. When did you, uh, did you, when did you watch yeah. Heather's for the first time? That's a great question. I want to say probably like 18-ish, like first year of college, probably. Definitely not when I was in high school. So what was it then? Was it just that there was somebody who was able to like highlight those, I just got out of high school and I'm just into college and I'm seeing a lot of the same social capital sort of repeat itself into now what's supposed to be my adult or my more mature understanding of the world? I mean, I think at the time my reading of it was very immature because I was still 18. And not to say 18-year-olds cannot have mature feelings, but I think I was processing with that like amount of lived experience. So at that time, I thought I was just like, yeah, fuck these Heathers. Like, let's not deal with my own internalized misogyny. <laughs> let's not touch that, bo that box of <laughs> Oh, <arms."> no. Um, <laughs> no. Uh, and I just thought, like, Christian Slater was cool and, like, wow, what a what a badass. And, like, oh, like, uh, Renona Ryder's character, Veronica, was, like, a hypocrite. It wasn't actually, like, living an authentic life. Uh, but then as you grow older, it changes. And you're like, no, no, no. They're both – Veronica's definitely not a hero. I, should, I would even say she's not even an anti-hero. 
but she's someone that is a teenager, like a pure teenager in the sense, like, oh no, so upset about so many things that they can't control, but so unaware of all the systems that are benefiting them that they're within and not wanting to have a conversation about those things. Like she's railing against all the Heathers for all their control, but at the end of the day, like she's eating like caviar on the on the porch playing croquet with her parents like every day. <laughs> like she has no no connection to unpacking her privilege or anything. So I think it's one of those one films of where like lines, I think you see uh, if you right. <laughs> No, uh, one of the best lines in the movie is when her she's talking to her mom about it's like God, I just want to be treated like an actual human being, and her mom's just like, "You are. That's why it doesn't yes. seem like you are because the whole real yes. world is so much crueler." And watching that now for the second time as a parent, I now I don't have a teenager; he's two, but he might as well be t- like sixteen in the making because he's got opinions and thoughts. And especially He's like, when you're talking about like <laughs> you're controlling other people, like I physically yeah. have to control my son so he doesn't eat like my wife's hair treatment, you know, like he doesn't spray it in his right. mouth. And so I can imagine those uncontrolled emotions of like, I cannot control my world and everybody's against me and I know how the world's supposed to work, even though you have absolutely no idea how the world's supposed to work. That's uh, that's enticing. And I found myself in the reading of JD now about how mm. his mom's gone and in a really fucking horrific like bombing <laughs> like what the f- they, they bombed yeah. a library that sounds like a rage against the machine lyric not only like the detail that gets me every time and i think that like again like this film is uh, you can it feels like it's marketed to teens and you can watch it when you're 18 when you're 20 when you're 30 when you're 40 and like the levels of like oh my goodness especially like as you mentioned if you have any connection to parenting or caregiving at all like just the dynamics shift so much but my favorite line of catching this time around watching it was when it was like not just that the library blew up but that the dad was scheduled to blow up this library because he's like this evil monopoly conglomerate dude but that his wife knew that like <laughs> waved to her son and they like walked on in on the library and stared at him as the building blew up like the levels of like what like what is her story like what was going on with her i don't know <laughs> like that's just like it's like what <laughs> it's like a weird ass protest i i i think there's definitely uh, yes i think that I, the choice to let her son see it i uh, that's that all that for me is actually why i'm like this is a horror film because like you just look at jd and just he's he's not uh, nothing he does is defensible but knowing that it's just like I feel like that's the, the one thing that like humanizes him to an extent because Veronica is just like I'm so over you with you waving your guns around and us just casually committing murder that you made me do although it's like uh, Veronica culpability here it's is like, a little shady <laughs> Veronica <laughs> you were very happy to fire a gun <laughs> right two like two footballers Right, especially that line where it was like, uh, I forget the exact wording of it, but he's like, so I told you that I had these special bullets that could pierce skin but not kill, and you didn't once be like, maybe, maybe. Uh, and but just yeah, the yeah. dumbfounded look of Ryder's face is such like a teenage, oh my god, I'm so stupid, how could I fall for this? I'm such an idiot vibe. Yeah, uh, and I love it. 
I love how it goes back to your earlier point, too, where it's just like what the film is actually about is culpability and consequences, right? Like she has all these ideas. She wants to kill all these people. She wants to destroy all these things. But then when it actually happens, she's like, no, I don't mean it. Take it back. It's your fault. And it's like, no, honey. (laughs) This is what it means to be an adult. You make mistakes and they're really messy. (laughs) And the consequences have bring on way worse feelings than you have ever imagined. At all. Yes. Yes. Just, so. uh, I, I, I think I just love the choices made in this. Like, there are, you know, <laughs> there are multiple funerals in Heather's. <laughs> But some of my favorite choices are, like, having the departed come back and, like, watch their own funeral and commentate on how popular they are or aren't. And uh, the best one for me is, like, there's an open casket and all the characters are just walking in front of it and you hear their internal dialogue. And I I love the chaos of that. I think any time you get, like, a... A weird sort of survey says of everybody in the school, whether it be answering the question, what would you do if like aliens came and you had like 24 hours to live versus them watching somebody dead at a funeral and going off in their own tangent. It's such a a Rorschach test in the most fucked up way possible. Like, what do you do when you see a dead body? Yeah, I don't know. But I also love that they do that bit of like... I believe it's three times total. I think I think so. Uh, of just like the surveying, and you get to see these characters' response because uh, that's also it's kind of a reach. But did you ever see Ten Things I Hate About You? No. no oh, okay. Well, uh, I think the split screen they do where they're like to get the sense in this film, Heather's like to get the sense of like a high school with a big cast. And like, yeah, I guess to an extent there was a big cast, but the main cast is actually pretty minimal, but to make oh, yeah. it feel oh, yeah. like a big, like high school production, the survey helps so much, right. To be like, here's all these random kind of differing sides of people and identities in this school. And so we have like five seconds with like 20 different people that aren't really integral to the film, but make it feel like a high school. Right, that's something right. they a hundred percent do in 10 things I hate about you. And it's not a survey per se, but I think this is one of those films that started that kind of idea to be like, you want to feel like you're in high school, but you have a cast of eight people just do these little <laughs> cutaway shots of like asking a question to these 10 random people to make you feel like you're in high school, which I just think is so smart. No, it really is. Cause then you get those crowd shots and then you see those people that you saw before in there. And so you feel just a little bit more connected. And it's also stuff like, uh, with the, I, I don't remember her actual name now, but Miss Dump Truck. I feel so oh, bad. Gosh. I feel oh, so my bad. Gosh. Just like the little moments that they capture of her like getting bullied and just the sadness in that actress's face. Like it's not a lot. You don't really need to do a lot with your actors in order to really sell the emotions that are going on here. And, you know, she is the one that arguably has taken the most shit like she should be as fucked mm-hmm. up as jd is but she just isn't and because you've got that choice behind it you could always make a choice as to what to do with your trauma and your mm-hmm. really fucked up feelings and then you know you could either kind of not necessarily do anything like she does and kind of just recluse herself or you could do what veronica does and sort of like pretentious herself above like even the heather like even in the beginning of the movie she thinks Mm -hmm. she's too good for the heathers like she's kind of translating into nerd or geek for them and it's such a like a i don't know it's almost like she's watching them as zoo animals it reminds me of yeah yeah like so 
this is kind of more like early aught slang because I was born in 1989, but definitely one of those like, I'm not like those girls. Like she has that vibe about her. Or again, internalized misogyny, which she definitely has. Where she's like, ew, they're just concerned about all these things like makeup and boys and their hair. And it's like, well, well, yeah, but also there's like some like, there, there are more of the Heathers at play. And I feel like the Heathers are self-aware that they're in this, honestly, play-like system that is high school. And they're just doing their part because this is how they survive. And they don't want to be picked on. So they do these horrible things so they can shit on everyone else and not be the ones that are bullied. Um, yeah, but yeah, isn't it, yeah. Isn't it at one point that uh, one of the Heathers mentions something like, oh, she's got a good like SAT score, like a good grades yeah. as well. It's just that she likes to play the game for whatever reason that she wants to play the game. And mm-hmm. hell, I love the, there's like power vacuum. I feel like Mean Girls really focused on like the society and like the power vacuums that be, the ecosystem yeah. of high school, so to speak. But as soon as Redhead Heather gets the opportunity to like take over and be Queen Lion, she's just fucking in. I, I-, I love that. I love how manipulative you can be behind the scenes just by something as simple as like getting the all the children to sign petitions for the suicide concert, which, by the way, can we talk <laughs> about how like a fuck you to dare and programs like that that is? hundred <laughs> oh percent. This was hundred percent aware of the I, I'm not going to pretend to say the right presidency right now but the, aware of this the satanic panic stranger danger like hysteria that was happening throughout the 80s where it was just like nobody wanted to admit the call is always coming from inside the house and said it was like drugs will harm your children strangers will harm your children and it's like mm, it actually traumatic family upbringing and like economic access are things that we need to look at as a country <laughs> but instead dare will save the day and actually dare never save the day and there was never proven successful statistically. Didn't do a damn. <laughs> I mean, Requiem for a Dream did more for me not to want to do heroin than a talking yeah. cartoon lion ever did. Yeah, just... no. And plus, no. nobody ever got <laughs> mad when I said I didn't want to smoke weed. Like, nobody ever got mad at me. Nope. I don't know what kind of lies they were spreading. It's the, it's the sat- satanic panic era where they're like, if you do weed, well, actually, the funny thing about it, too, is like if you dive into like uh, Michelle Remembers, which is like a whole book thing and a couple other like um, texts that are like escaping my mind right now, they they make the Satan's lettuce is what they called it. They make weed seem like the worst thing in the world. So like first you just hang out with your friends and someone drops acid in your Coca-Cola then the next day you do speed and then eventually you'll go in to do the Satan's lettuce. And you're like, that is what? This, that that is was what's happening at the time. There's not the not trajectory. The also, there's, there's also not a roadmap to, to drug use recreationally or otherwise, but also it just always makes me laugh. If you dig into those like late seventies, especially in early eighties texts, it's always just like the end disastrous thing where you can't come back for is like, we <laughs> so like, Oh, not like heroin. <laughs> Not like it's it's crack cocaine, right? Not, that the like, government helped distribute, but fine, it was fine. Yes. <laughs> well, no, it's because the government helped distribute it. They didn't distribute weed. Shit. If, Co- if they could, they would have Costco <laughs> sell crack, saying. and it would be a Kirkland's brand. <laughs> just, just saying, without saying, allegedly, but yes. <laughs> yeah. But uh, 
I don't, I don't know. Yeah. This one to me was just. Uh, I, I really like the, how dark it gets. I kind of like the that mm -hmm. it's not afraid to really go into the sort of real life consequences. And I guess it's a movie that really didn't need to. Like you said, if it's about culpability and consequences, like this needs to be tough. This needs to be something mm -hmm. that really weighs people. And uh, I don't, I don't know, just something so deliciously funny about like the last shot of like the thing bl like jd blowing up and she's just smoking his cigarette which i totally cannot like the guys behind ready or not had to know what they have yes. were doing i was gonna say had you didn't to know say what that they were doing a thousand percent i was like that i was like come on come on and a wedding dress they, making they cigarette and bloodshed Yes. Yeah, no, absolutely. They didn't know what was going on. And it's very much, I don't know if it's like a good for her movie necessarily, just because I I guess I'm glad that it's a, I'm, I guess I'm glad that she understands her own shit and is ultimately nice and like starts kind of working on being a decent person as opposed to um, an asshole. I also actually really love the choice that she does of taking the bow at the end because that bow signified what? Queen bee, the sort of like bitchiness stereotype. But right. whenever you see it flipped on at the end, the bow being of like almost uh, almost like making someone look more like a child, like more innocence, more sweet. There's like a weird hmm. like hmm. double thing going on there where now she's using it as like a form of good. I, I don't know if that's yeah. like just a way that it looks like, but that's kind of my thought. I, I mean, I don't think that's, I don't, I mean, I don't think they're necessarily a wrong reading of it. I think that I, I was just like, oh, I don't, I didn't think of that, but I, I do think there's something about the low hanging placement of that bow, which is very childlike. Uh, yeah. Which I hadn't quite thought of before, but yeah, I think so. I think I like the idea that it's not just that she takes the bow, but she takes the bow and then hangs out with Martha and chats with her. And like yeah, based on what we yeah. know of this film, like the queen bee with the bow would never be seen dead talking to Martha. So the fact mm -hmm. that she's take like dismantling this power and doing something different just lets us wonder, like, oh, I wonder where you're going on this trajectory. Uh, I like to think that the queen bees are done, that there's none other queen bee, and that's like similar to like the mean girl thing where it's like, ah, the groups just get dismantled and there's just groups. There's not like a hierarchy anymore, you know? Absolutely. Um, there's not a yeah. cat system. Ironically, yes. Veronica, through being kind, does what JD wanted to do the entire time, which is just break yes. down these divisions. But, yes. you know, you're just being nice and not a You don't need to commit murder. <laughs> you don't need to shoot people. <laughs> Americans, I don't know what I have to say. You don't need to shoot people. Sometimes you could just be nice. Whatever happened to good old fashioned duels? You know, you just stand yeah. out there, like one guy has a sword, another guy has a sword, and you settle your beef that way. You gotta get a mass shoot people. No bombings <laughs> allowed. What happened to good old fashioned fisticuffs? Or rap battles. Let's bring it back to the late 1990s. Rap battle it out. Just dance sit down. offs, bruh. Or dance offs. That'd be great. I would really love that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's move on to the next movie here. Is this. Okay, so if Heather's is 88. Wait, did, 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 did Combat. When did oh, Combat come out? 95. Is it 96? 95. Okay. So yeah. it was very close. Was, yeah. yeah. I thought we would have to go in the months there, because if it's 96, I know, we have to remember <laughs> <laughs> All right.
each of us, there burns the fury of a warrior. In every generation, a few are chosen to prove it. One of you three will decide the outcome of the tournament. Three strangers will travel to the mystical realm of Outworld to defend our people against Shang Tsung. You will and his forces of darkness in an ancient tournament. One more victory. Your soul is mine. And our world no! is theirs. It has begun. Okay, so when do you watch Mortal Kombat? Oh, okay, this one is not as hard to figure out. I was five years old. I was at my karate's dojo, and they had this like small little back office where, like, if you had an adult or a caregiver taking class and the kids didn't know what to do, you just get shuffled into that room, and they had a collection of like four VHS tapes that you could watch, and it was basically just like. Happy Gilmore, the two Mortal Kombat movies. <laughs> and then, like, I think it was, like, Waterworld for whatever reason. Uh, so okay. Mortal Kombat all the way. Uh, I think this is such a fun movie. I think Paul W.S. Anderson deserves so much credit for this because I think that it represents the games in a really fun way. I also loved all the characters. I wanted to be Sonya Blade as a kid. Uh, I just remember that theme song more than anything because when I was younger, I used to do uh, – karate tournaments and there was a section of it where it was like i didn't participate in this category but they did creative forms so you could basically like play music and then do forms to the music so it's like choreographed so it's kind of like so it's like a kata so like whenever you do like figure skating and shit and you have your own like routine but instead of figure skating you do katas and then just go into your thingy i mean pretty much yeah so like you would get judged more on like for those things, it was like it was like freestyling with music. So like it wouldn't be like an established like kata looking at the technique. It'd be like creative free form. So it's like, how are they knitting the moves together? How much does it match up with the music? How inventive is it? How powerful is it? That kind of stuff. Uh, but like every single tournament throughout the nineties, at least one person's like, I'm gonna be cool and do the Mortal Kombat theme song. So like it is like burned into my brain. <laughs> I love this. When'd you get started with uh, karate and taekwondo? Because I thought that would be like you watch this movie and then something awakens in you and you have to like Liu Kang flutter kick your way across the room as a child and your mom's like, uh, energy elsewhere. Go healthy form. Yeah, I'm just like that dragon in the like Mortal Kombat logo where it's like I'm stone all of a sudden my eyes open up with fireballs. Um, I was like, I was four and. I went downstairs and my dad, my dad had 
studied karate for a long time. <clears throat> and when I was four, I walked downstairs and saw him working out. And I was just like, I want to do this. And my dad was just like, okay. Uh, and so he enrolled me like very quickly, like within the week. So I did karate from when I was four till when I was about 16-ish, right around the time when I was preparing to apply to college. I, for a short time, did a little bit of it in college. It was more or less just like trying out random classes and different styles. Like I did a couple classes and things like capoeira, uh, boxing, uh, aikido, but didn't really stick with it and took a big break. And then when I was about 21, I started taekwondo and I've been doing taekwondo as like my main art form for over a decade now. So what makes you stick with it, especially as a kid? Like what made you stick with it? That's a great question. I think, I think for me, I was very shy, and I lived in the suburbs, so there's not a lot of things to do at the time. So I liked the idea that there was a space that was like separate from school, because I definitely was not a popular kid in school. I was a little bit of a nerd and shy, so I liked that there's a spot that wasn't there. But I got to hang out with people that were my age and the way to kind of break down social systems was more fun. Like you hold pads for each other and there's this like this camaraderie in martial arts where a lot of it is learning not just how to like be quote unquote good at what you're doing, but to support the people training around you. Like, so it's not just like, am I kicking this pad really hard? It's like, am I also holding this pad in a way that's supportive for my partner and what can I do better to make sure they're doing good? So it's just a lot easier to make friendships and like, and naturally that builds community. We also like, I was, (laughs) I was very lucky where I'm like my little dojo was very big in doing community events. So like, Every Halloween, they would rent the school bus and they'd make it a haunted school bus. Uh, and then, like for birthday parties, they would let you like basically invite your friends or whatever, and you could have a birthday party there. And you would get to like uh, quote unquote play with like swords, like nunchucks and katanas, uh, and demonstrate how to use them. So then you felt super cool, like you were a little ninja. So I think the community aspect is what kept me in it. And did I also you think ever yeah. get to cut your cake with a katana? With a katana, yes, I did. <laughs> Fuck yeah! <laughs> and like, I'd be you, it so feels fucking amazing. disappointed. Ah. Yeah, it's that I, I, it's it's in a like the level of commitment that like uh like my sensei then had was so cool. Like I remember when they were remodeling the school, and it wasn't a huge remodel. But it was basically they needed to break down a wall and push push out the wall to make a bigger central mat space. And so the way they did it, it was like. I mean, I think a little bit was to save money to not hire outside contractors, but they invited students and their parents to come and you would take like a hammer and stuff or whatever weapon you wanted to. And you got to help knock down a wall, which was just, I remember how badass I felt. Like I was just like, I felt like, like, look at me. I'm little baby John Wick. Like, hammer to this wall. (laughs) (laughs) It's like all all those things were like, uh, just, I mean, amazing, like amazing memories. Um, And it's also just like, I think um, you mentioned there's something that Taekwondo is yeah. like yeah. your art form. That, yes. It's kind of an interesting way that I could, I, I hadn't considered that. Like you don't think of it as like you being, oh, I got to be in shape, so I might as well pick this. Mm-hmm. But like your art form, how does that, how does Taekwondo an art form for yourself? So I think it's also because I, I also, I teach it a couple times a week and I train within it. So I think for me, it's like, So uh, a weird comparison, but comparing it to like writing, because obviously it's the other thing I do mainly, but uh, there's like a hundred ways to write a sentence, right? And the more and more you write, the more and more you edit, you you learn some tricks, you you learn technique, you learn that like 
there are certain ways to make a sentence stronger. There's also there's room for just like improv and like for something being just different. But uh, you you learn it the more that you do it. And I think with Taekwondo, like I don't know how many punches I've thrown in my entire life. But the more and more you do it, you learn these like incremental differences to like what makes a stronger punch, like how you're preparing hand, like at what literal level and angle and closeness to your face and to your shoulder blade and like what angle of your hip is for this one side of your body while this other side of your body is positioning to like push out in a different direction. Like you get the more understanding you get, the more you get to delve into like the microcosm of it. And then you get to the point where you're like, no one will ever throw a perfect punch, but like that's kind of the fun of it after a certain point. Like no one's ever going to throw the most perfect front kick, but the more you do it, the more you, you understand the mechanics, like what actually makes that kick work. And then like, what are the small little tweaks you can do to make it faster or stronger? And then as you get older, your body changes too. So like what used to work for you might not continue to work for you. So like if you do a lot of high cardio things like Taekwondo, where you're jumping, you're kicking all the time, your knees are going to take like a brutal beat down. (laughs) So like probably won't be able to kick necessarily as fast being honest but you can kick as strong uh at like a lower height if you like lower your center of gravity and that's like a more stable way to do it for like joint preservation and stuff so there's like all these little things uh so i consider it an art form so is it like a way for you to essentially discover your body through repetitions of this form because i would imagine like Mm -hmm. Now that I'm thinking about like Mortal Kombat and the next question would be like, <laughs> what Mortal Kombat character are you? And that's a stupid way oh. to put it or like a, a reductive way yeah. to put it. But now that I'm thinking about it, like, yeah, it's not just that you learn the technique or you learn from different masters or whatnot. It's like your body is mm-hmm. actually forming your style via repetition and like you're learning more mm-hmm. about yourself. I, I, I don't know. I yeah. think that's cool. It's what it's it's honestly that's why I love it too because it's also like as you learn more about the style your body changes for the style but then as your body gets older you'll then have to make certain tweaks so I feel like it's almost like to kind of expand on your question it's like throughout your martial arts journey you're going to be a lot of different Mortal Kombat characters depending on a different like a lot of different factors of your life right so like maybe you start off as like a Sonya Blade because like you're younger, you're more spry, or maybe you put more attention into like agility training and not a lot of strength training. But maybe you're like, I'm gonna be a fucking con because I don't wanna I don't wanna move quickly, but I'm gonna do a lot of weight training. So I'm gonna have heavy kicks. So I kick not as much, but I'm a tank. So like I like thinking of it that way, right? This Are you okay? Like, so, <laughs> no, I was just so happy. Like you could be you could like you could custom create like I play Smash Brothers. That's about as best as I could do with this. And it's like, oh, you've got your mains. And I'm like, I'm an Ike main because I like using my big ass sword. But just the idea that you yourself can be like different characters is just the coolest fucking idea to me. Yeah, yeah, that totally makes sense. The Shao Kahn thing. And uh, no, but for real, for real, like who's your who? What Mortal Kombat character would you realistically be? Hmm. Okay, I'm gonna try to be honest. Like, who would I be now? Um, in my 20s, I definitely was Katana. Oh, God, <laughs> I think now, honestly, I think now my goal is to be Raiden. Like, I think that's like I want to do this forever. You know, I want to do it long term. So, like, I want to yeah. be not necessarily the one like kicking the most, but the one that's like kicked the least. And then when I do land a hit, it is like. A hard hit, you know, like that's the goal. Yeah. So I would say Raiden. 
I like that. There's sort of like a psychological or philosophy of like, I'm not going to start the fight, but I shall end it if need be. Mm. Also, yeah, what the hell knees. is Christopher Lambert doing? Like, what I is that know. accent? What is that accent, dude? I don't know. <laughs> it's, <There's> like a, <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's like a French guy who smoked cigarettes for 40 years and now is starting to feel the repercussions of his actions. Mm-hmm. I, I, I love Christopher Lambert, but like that's the one thing. Like, what do you think of the remake? Because I actually kind of like the remake a lot. I like a lot about the remake. I think my favorite thing was how the um, Scorpion and yes, oh, Sub Zero. Uh, thank you, Scorpion Sub Zero backstory was fleshed out in a way that's like more can like more like what we know in the bigger canon Mortal Kombat and is like so much more interesting than what we ever see in the other Mortal Kombat movies. And that was fantastically done. I honestly think like they could the for my my opinion, I didn't totally love the movie, but not because it was bad i just think it had a lot of pressure to do so much in the hopes that like if it did really well it would get all these spinoffs where like i kind of just wanted it to be about in some ways it was but i kind of just wanted it to be about scorpion and sub-zero as like its own kind of prequel and just, yeah. just that to be its own film before everything else shoots off from there because i thought there's just there's just so much of this world that it's just hard to keep it in an ensemble format for me what did you think uh, the remake, I like it. Even though it's not a tournament, there are so many like little mini fights within that movie that I was like, mm-hmm. okay, this oh, is yeah. pretty much the game. Like you get to watch people just duke it out in great fatalities and whatnot. And Hiroyuki Sonata can be Scorpion for three hours, and I would watch him do it because he's extraordinary in it. I mean, mm-hmm. he's extraordinary in John Wick, which I just covered too. Like that guy needs yeah. to be in every fucking movie. But. Uh, you know, it's been doing it for like 40 years. <laughs> yeah, there, there are like some movies where just like, uh, I don't know if I need this new character. It doesn't really matter to me. Like it's not the cleanest Mortal Kombat movie there could be, but I definitely think it should, it, it definitely needs better. I think we do need a sequel to it. I, mm-hmm. I think there are just like a more straightforward way to go. And that's kind of what I liked about this one. I know this one got like shit on back in the day because number one is the PG-13. And... uh yeah. Yeah, you could definitely could have gotten more silly R, like a Raimi style R. I think could have worked for this pretty well, but uh, for what it is, the tournament format is it's it's fine. Like I don't yeah. really the, the fighting's good and sure like characters stop mattering after a point and like Sonya Blade just like disappears from the mm-hmm. movie essentially, which isn't the great writing in the world, but like. The character designs are great, and the visual effects, while 90s bad, are good 90s bad. They're good cheese. I like that kind of stuff. Also, the the Shang Tsung thing is, like, fucking horrific. (laughs) I I don't know what it is. I I, I don't know what it is about, like, Luke King, like, sleeping, and he's like, your brother's soul is mine, and he, like, he grabs him by the hair and there's something about that that's just like using your loved one as a rag doll that I found just like so disturbing. And yet, like that guy, whoever plays Shang Tsung, has so much fucking charisma in the role and is having so much goddamn fun with it that I, mm-hmm. I, I just loved it. I, I liked it. It's cheese. It's, it's good great. cheese. It's fun. It's a good time. It's, um, I think. What I like about this one too is like it's it's still in the era where like <laughs> yes there is that CGI but for the most of it I feel like in this version the fights are they're clean 
I, I can see punches land. I can see kicks land there. It's maybe it's a little bit more um, stage fighty ways, right? Where when someone like gets kicked back, they're like, whoa, and their body like shakes back a little bit. But like, I, I would rather that, you know, and I love the uh, one of the early scenes in this in uh, 1995's Mortal Kombat is when we see. Oh, my goodness. Uh, Luke, nope, not Luke Cage. Um, Johnny Cage? Johnny Cage, yes, the Hollywood star. Yes. Yes. Uh, when you see Johnny Cage on set of a movie and I was about he, to mention this, yeah. Yes. And he has all the attackers surrounding him. You know, everyone looks like they're in a video game and they're just like waiting alongside him, like hopping up and down. <laughs> and they all like wait their turn to come in to fight. And you're like, this is this is not how this would happen. But the film's aware of that. And it's very like it feels very like that feels very campy and stage. But I love they have that in there and then it feels like it's in conversation with how films, especially in like the late 80s, approached fighting scenes, right? Where it was just very over the top and people were just pausing for way too long to be like, oh, look, freeze frame, Jean-Claude Van Damme. <laughs> and that yeah. it's like, it's, it's making fun of that. And then the actual fights we've seen the film are, for the most part, like wide panel shots. It's very clear action. And it's just like, well done. We need more of that. How uh, how focused are you, no, coming from a martial arts yes. background, how focused are you when you're watching action movies and you're, like, how do you critique fight scenes in movies? Uh, it's hard. I think also, like, a big thing that, like, I always try to mention whenever I'm, like, writing about it or talking about it, fight choreography. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> fight choreography. <laughs> Coordinating fights. I, I can never say <laughs> that word. Coordinating fights for the screen is not the same thing as the way you would fight on a mat. And the reason why is like if you're punching or like kicking super quick and you had a camera in front, it wouldn't be able to capture that. You'll see it, but it'll just be like, like what just happened? Like I just, okay, listeners, I'm punching at my camera. What What is that? But if I like <laughs> exaggerately go like, You'll, you see it. So there's this idea of like this dance like mechanic to fight, to stunt and fight coordinating where there's like a more exaggerated hold and wind up and then more exaggerated like punch and land. And because of that, it's slower. And that's where the art of it comes into of like designing these things where you want to coach people to fight realistically, but to be quick enough that it feels realistic, but slow enough that it actually appear, appears on camera and the action is clear. And the best action scenes do that and also usually have like medium, which means like not close up or like wide panel shots so that you can see what is literally happening. If there's a tussle, like, okay, my challenge for listeners is like pick, honestly, most MCU scenes, that's a fight. And then like a minute, a minute, and then try to like map out what happened, who hit who with what move. It can even just be like the hit with a hand, hit with a foot. And when you can't because there's so much close ups and cutaways that like, you know, there's a battle happening. but you, you can't actually tell me what actually happened. So for me, the best action scenes is when it's just like, oh, like John McFord's a great example. Like John Wick is in a headlock. John Wick got out of the headlock by moving and pushing someone away with his hand. He then kicked with his other leg and this person grabbed his leg and then pushed him away by grabbing his leg. Like you can see how one thing connects the other. If I can't see that, it might look cool. There might be a nice soundtrack to like pump up your blood, but it's not a great uh, action scene in my opinion. 
my, my personal examples are the Taken movies, which are yes. horrifically edited with action, especially the third one, which is a travesty to man. But yeah, there's so much like close up and quick cuts and the shake is just, it, it's incomprehensible. The shake, the, the shake is, yeah. especially if it's like, I understand the whole handheld camera. But there's mm -hmm. nobody who's like falling down the stairs and running at the same time to create the level of digital artificial shake that you get in modern yes. action. And I'm kind of glad that with the John Wick and the kind of like people aping that style now in movies that mm -hmm. it's starting mm -hmm. to slowly go away. But yeah, the MCU is not really where I'm looking for for like great action fighting. Yeah, no. No. I mean, I think a great example of a film recently that's not an action film but used handheld cameras to great effect was the latest Scream movie. It's very subtle, and you wouldn't even, a lot of people wouldn't even be able to tell that they used handheld cameras. Uh, I will not mm -hmm. spoil it, but there's a scene where one of the ghost faces is attacking someone, and you're looking up, like from the perspective of like the lens, you're like, or the, the frame, you see the ghost face above a character attacking the character, and that's a handheld camera. But you wouldn't know because they're not making it super obvious to be like, oh, look, because <laughs> like, it wouldn't make sense. It wouldn't make sense. We're not no. in a fun footage film. But you can do it. You can use handheld camera in an action scene and, it, and enhance it. But I think like it just has to be smart and it's often not, which is, which is brutal. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, speaking of being smart and aware of what the hell you're doing, we got to talk about Scream. Hello. Hello. Who is this? Tell me your name, I'll tell you mine. <laughs> I don't think so. What's that noise? Popcorn. You're making popcorn? Well, I'm getting ready to watch a video. Really? What? Well, just some scary movie. You like scary movies? Uh-huh. You never told me your name. Why do you want to know my name? I want to know who I'm looking at. Someone is playing a deadly game. It all began with a scream over 911. Someone who's seen one too many scary movies. Now, he's taken his love of fear. Hello? Hello, Sydney. One step too far. Do you like scary movies? What's the point? They're all the same. Some stupid killer stalking some big-breasted girl who can't act, who's always running up the stairs when she should be going out the front door. It's insulting. There are certain rules that one must abide by in order to successfully survive a scary movie. Number one, you can never have sex. Hey, what? Just me. Never, ever, ever, under any circumstances, say, I'll be right back. Because you won't be back. You get another beer, you want one? Yeah, sure. I'll be right back. He didn't make the rules. The police are always off track. If they watch Palm Night, they save time. He just kills by them. Don't answer the phone. Don't open the door. Don't try to hide. Everybody's a suspect! You're not scared, are you? Scream. Directed by Russ Craven. Written by Ken God. Williamson. God rest. <laughs> God rest, Wes Craven. We miss him every day. I know. All right, so, okay, if yeah. Mortal Kombat came out when you were five, this comes out when you're six, when do you watch Scream for the first time? About 12, around that. Uh, I remember what's your it relation to horror around that time? 
almost non-existent. Like the only thing that I'll say is that like when I was like a similar age to when I watched Mortal Kombat, just because my dad didn't, well, he wasn't really big into censorship videos, <laughs> uh, for better or for worse. So the, nice. the one of the first movies I saw was Jaws at like five-ish or so. Uh, so that was my first horror movie. And then I was just like, right. oh my goodness. It was, I mean, it, I still to this day hate going to the ocean i'm terrified um but yeah uh non-existent until around like preteen teen years where then i started to like seek it out when i like go to the video store to rent videos and like go to sleepovers and be like oh my god we got what lies beneath and it wasn't scary but like we wanted it to be scary you know like those kind of things um but scream i saw it at a cousin's house who had both Scream 1 and Scream 2 on VHS, and I was very excited to watch it. And I I was just mesmerized. I remember, too, because I was sitting by, like, a window, and, like, it had those those blinds that you can open and shut, but the blinds were, like, half open. And I was just convinced mm-hmm. as we were watching it that Ghostface was just hovering in the window. I was so jumpy. Like, it was the first time I felt, like, like – Aside from Jaws, which is like, I'm not going to go in the water. I'll be fine. But it was the first time that I saw a horror movie as a, as a kid where I was like, this could happen to me. Like, Ghostface could be outside. So it looked like forever I have a place in my heart. Is this kind of the thing that introduces you into horror? I mean, you have a whole podcast about it. Is this kind of like the catalyst that sends you down the rabbit hole of it? Yeah, I definitely think so. Because I think this was the thing where, like, it felt like – it felt like a, it was one of those movies that feels like a secret and felt like coveted. And I wanted that feeling again. So I think this was definitely the film that jump started that. Uh, and it's also like the thing that I think is kind of, it's way different now, but back then when streamers didn't exist, when internet was still dial up and very shoddy, like you had to like do the work to find scary movies. So when you found one, it felt so cool. Like, cause even when you go, when you go to blockbuster or Hollywood video or your like local mom and pop store, like, odds are the thing you wanted to see wasn't there. You would just be staring, like drooling at a cover of something that you have your hands on, but you can't get. And so there's just like this delayed gratification of this error that I think just made horror feel even cooler. Okay. So what is it about Scream specifically? Was it that it scared you? Was it that it was aware of the thing? Like, what do you love most about Scream? I think I like, I think they're one of the reasons why I picked it was it's one of those films like, like Heather's and like Mortal Kombat. I come to them again and again, partially as a comfort film, but partially because I think that they're so ahead of their times. Like the way that Heather's was ahead of its time in discussing like teen dynamics in high school, the way that Mortal Kombat was ahead of its time discussing fight scenes and action movies. Scream was ahead of its time in breaking the formulaic uh, setup of slashers made by a horror maestro who did formulaic setups intentionally or unintentionally or created patterns that other people like copied for years. But I came to that movie without the knowledge of that ahead of time, you know? So like the older I get, the more I can see like the influence and the just like cleverness of Williamson, but also very much Craven. And the one thing I, I, I think for me that holds up with this film to this day, more than most horror films is like how much like of a humanist Craven is like the thing that's scary about Scream isn't necessarily Pacey getting gutted like a fish. It's the fact that we see her not being able to speak to her parents, but getting so close in that distance. We see her before she dies, see who kills her and not get to do anything with that knowledge. Like it's these like very like humane little touches that like, yes, it's, it's, 
it's definitely scary. It's definitely gory. But it also feels like the camera is empathizing with these characters that Craven's also torturing for our fun. And I think it's working on these dualities because then we care about Casey, which makes us care about these films, care about the people that are getting endangered. Where I feel like a lot of slashers, it's just easy to not care about the characters, which is fine. It can be fun. But I, th- I think he was able to make Scream after living through and witnessing how unintentionally with the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise, he made people fall in love with the villain and fall in love with like Freddy Krueger more than like Nancy Thompson. And I feel like I feel that in this, you know, um, which I, I hope that answers your question, but no, I totally understand it. Cause I mean, he's already doing that in a way with new nightmare, which is his mm-hmm. proto scream. And I, scream. I yeah. like that movie a little bit better uh, just because mm-hmm. I'm, fr- I'm a Freddy kid at heart, and I've always mm-hmm. loved the uh, one, three, two, four, you know, everything except like five and six for Freddy. Yeah. But uh, with this one, like you, I, I was actually reminded a lot of uh, Tobe Hooper in his mm-hmm. Texas Chainsaw mm-hmm. movies, like especially number two. I found like mm-hmm. there's this real like perverse angle. Like there's that part where like. Leatherface comes into the radio station and the lady is sitting there and he's like, he's being gross and like, it's like a darkly comedic thing where he's like using the chainsaw to replace his penis and like pretend to like dry hump her. But it mm-hmm. it doesn't look at her reaction as a joke or anything. Mm. It's always the horror mm-hmm. in her face. And I also, relating that to Scream, in this one found so much more that the reason why this works, which I I don't like the radio silence screams for this reason. In my mind, mm. it's always that they are focusing on the knowledge of the structure of the movie and not more about making the actual story, like, great. Like, Scream is yeah. just a kick-ass Giallo movie. It's just a great mystery. And it <laughs> loves Sydney so much. Like, I love that one of the red herrings in this movie which in other slashers would be chalked up to her being stupid, but it, this one makes perfect sense. Like, the first time that she thinks that Billy Loomis is actually the killer, mm-hmm. and then she's challenged by Gail through the recollection that she has of her of testifying cotton. about Cotton, yeah. And so in that moment, she's got this sort of, like, insecurity about her past. And at that moment is when Billy returns again. And now Mm -hmm. burdened by the sort of emotional weight, then we start to see her brain just go, okay, maybe he's not the killer. Even though we know that's a red herring and we know that's wrong, like, it's based in character the reason why she shifts her focus. And I feel like other slasher movies don't do that. And I think that's the real commentary of Scream. Like, yeah, it's just smart in the way it constructs. It's, I don't know, yeah. it's just great construction. I think I, 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 I very much agree with you. And I also like, I'm not saying I don't enjoy or have a good time with Scream 5 or Scream 6. I also acknowledge that like growing up in the like OG days of Scream, I'm going to have my own biases. I'm not aware of, obviously. But I think that for me, the reason why like the earlier films hit so hard is because they don't lean so heavily on the exposition to do the commentary work. They let the camera itself do that work. Like, I know we're not talking about Scream 2, but I feel like the half the reason why I'm obsessed still with the opening kill of Scream 2 is because it lets the camera comment on like, what do we get out of seeing people die in slashers and watch an audience 
sit with that realization of the joy they take in something fictional that's murderous and then realize that there's also actually real life murders that happen every single day. Like, but that's not said. No, there's no character popping up just being like, did we that's think right. about the meta-ness of this? Like, we, no, no, there's no Randy. There's no Mindy. The camera trusts the audience to see the disparity and let us sit with the discomfort. And I think like the Radio Silence films, like Kevin Williamson sometimes, bless his heart. I think he's very talented, but I think sometimes he's a bit too heavy handed. And I think paired with Craven, Craven knew when to use the camera to better articulate a point. Uh, yeah. And I think that that's the thing that I, I've still yet to see with five or six. There's still great films, but you don't get to be meta just by like describing how meta you are. And it's a really hard thing to discuss too. Cause it's like, well, you go write a movie. It's like, well, I, I have not. <laughs> sir. It's, it's one of the problems I have with something like Deadpool, where I think Deadpool yeah, is so yes. focused on like it describing the superhero genre while doing the same. Like you can't do the things that you're satirizing and sit, point them out yeah. and call that satire. You're just doing another version of that and you're aware of Ooh. it. Yes. Yes. I think like before we move on to your next point, I think you can do that, but only if you call yourself out. And I think the reason why Craven owns the screen movies is because he calls himself out by the frames where like at the end of the day, he's making a slasher film that's destroying, literally killing women after women after women. But he's having frames where we see, like, it feels like the film is empathizing and sympathizing with these women characters, not being heard, not being listening to. Uh, so, like, he can do it because he's also calling himself out as well. Where, like, a film like Deadpool isn't acknowledging that they're yeah. doing that too. <laughs> and I don't even think that the... Uh... It's not necessarily like a calling out. Like it's in the construction of the scene. So like, mm. the the big one is whenever she's on the phone and she talks about how she doesn't like horror movies because it's always some like big boobed girl like running up the stairs when she should really be running out the house. And then mm. Craven constructs that scene and a reductive way to look at that is like, aha, I'm calling myself out, gotcha moment. But look at the construction of that scene. At that moment. It makes sense for her to have closed the top lock of the door because she is nervous about people getting in. And then while she's there, why would you spend time trying to remove that top lock of the door when the killer is right behind you? So what's the next step? Do you run around the back, the bottom of your house where the killer is? Or do you go upstairs and at least ensure that the killer is not within like the 500 square feet that's upstairs? The, there are reasons as to why he has her run up the stairs because at that moment, that is the best decision for her. And yeah, I and like I, that yeah. that construction is there in the scene. Yes, but I'll say that, like, I still think that he is calling himself out, but I'm not, I don't think it's a reductive way of saying that. I think that he constructs it in a way to not make it reductive, but he's still being like, I'm going to give you a scene that, like, is literally what this character is like, I would never do this. And then I'm going to construct it in a way where I'm going to do this, but I'm going to make it set up in a, like in a, like a humane way where we understand and can follow the logic. So we understand why this character is making these choices that they're making where other films don't take that necessary care for us to understand why they're doing these things. It's just like histronics running in the hallways and screaming. But I, I do think he's still calling out. He's like, Oh no, I'm, I'm doing that thing, but I'm making it so that, you deeply care for these characters and that you follow their train of thought. Yeah. I think the, I think we're basically just like a version of the same thing where mm. 
yeah, as long as you're aware that your construction is done in service of not just to fit a mold, but instead to fit a scene, a character, a sense of story, mm -hmm. then yeah, totally go for it. Like, do that sort of uh, call out for yourself. It just like. I'm loving all the giallo in this. I'm loving just like mm -hmm. there's that one big like shot of like Ghostface holding the knife over his head, and I'm like, ooh, that just has this kind of rich flavor and sort of like dynamic energy to it. I, I, don't, yeah. I don't know. There's a lot of like the this person stalking. There's the it's a who done it. Like Scream is a who done it first. And a, mm -hmm. really a slasher second. It yes. just I, I don't know. I really loved all of that stuff kind of broiled into the chemistry of this thing. That when you do get to the points where like they're talking about horror movies, I, I love how and I, I don't know if this is explicit or not, but there's one scene when they're uh, I think it's Sydney and Kenny. They're like looking at the camera that Gail has set inside the house or they're watching the frame. And in a movie like this where the characters are technically one step ahead of the movie, Craven flips it by literally making them one step behind because of the 30 second delay. So they're mm -hmm. watching this thing and Again, it's not to be like a haha. I'm I'm making this joke. It fits within the movie, and it's just like a really sad like death that ends up happening. That they're thirty seconds behind, but I couldn't help but notice that like these people are watching a horror movie. They think they're one step ahead of it because they're looking inside, but realistically, they're not because they're behind. In yes. that way, I, I don't know. I thought that was something kind of yeah. neat. No, it's great. It's also a fantastic way to build tension too, because you we know that as the audience that there's a delay as the characters are discovering and rediscovering the delay. Uh, but it's seated, so it doesn't feel too forced, you know? Like, we know this. And then watching the characters discover it adds that extra layer of, like, dramatic irony, which is just, like, Mwah, chef's kiss. It's very good. Or you it. could do what I did and just forget that it was on that delay happened. along with the characters and just be like, oh, yeah. shit, I knew this, but mm -hmm. fuck me, I forgot too. Like, I don't know, just... Craven's a genius. I, I, mm -hmm. I just think he's a genius. He was taken from us way too soon. Yes. Rest in peace, Craven. You're deeply missed. So is this your favorite of the franchise, the Scream movies? Oh, that's a hard question. I, hmm. I think it changes. I think for me, one and two often flip-flop their spots. Really? I think, like... yeah, I, I, I I think that Scream 2, granted, like, there were some leaks that changed, like, certain endings and stuff, and, and I, I because I know of those leaks and how endings could have changed, like, I don't necessarily know if I love how Scream 2 ended, but I will say that, like, Laurie Metcalf destroyed, like, I think she Absolutely. is probably, like, she is, I think, my favorite Ghostface villain of all time, and I also think that her motivation makes one of the most sense of the entire franchise like that's true yeah where others are like okay um where hers is like she got everything taken from her like not just her marriage got dissolved but like hers she had to live with the fact that her marriage got dissolved her son was not only a serial killer but got brutally murdered all in the name yeah. of this affair that your husband had so like all those levels of trauma, I'm like, you take the stage. You take the stage, Mrs. Loomis. <laughs> like, you, Pamela Voorhees, 
4.0 and you are Talk serving it. Oh my goodness. You even get, she gets to like, <laughs> she gets to hoodwink Gale, who's the most competent character of the franchise. And you're like, oh my goodness. Like between that alone, I think that, and I also think that um, the set pieces are the strongest, I think in two. And I also, oh, I, I do think six, I will say six has some stellar set pieces, but I think like Scream 2, the set pieces are the strongest because I care more uh, about the characters in, in Scream 2. And I think that there's just something about the college era of Sydney that just like hits me so hard where like this is the first film where you really see Sydney post the first like of a hundred <laughs> wins per mur- murders. So you actually see what she's like actively trying to recover from this horrible thing that has happened to her and her friends. And I just feel like so close to that Sydney. Cause she's just like, she's at the start of this new stage in her life where like everything's supposed to be great, right? You're supposed to go to college, meet new people, escape your like small town legacy, get a job. And again, it gets derailed. So I feel like it's even more heartbreaking. Um, so I'm just like fascinated with her arc in that one where the other ones, like I still I love all the screen movies, but this one, I just think it's just, it's in a way a lot sadder uh, and gorier. And I don't know. I just, I think the two, now that I'm saying, I think right now currently Scream 2 is number one, but I go back and forth. That's cool. I actually haven't heard anybody say that 2 is better, but you make a great case for really? it. Really? Oh, <laughs> thank yeah. you. No, I, I was thinking about how sad that is. Yeah, it's something that uh, when I was watching like Halloween Kills, and I know a lot of people don't like Halloween <laughs> Kills, I fucking love it. It's okay. I, I, own your truth, I, Daniel. Oh, I, I, I do own my truth. The only thing that really did break my heart, and I know a lot of people wanted uh, Lori to be back, but I like that we don't see Lori back for the same reasons that like you want Sydney to kind of like be happy and to recover. Mm-hmm. And I realize mm-hmm. that if you're following the regular Halloween, Halloween 2018 t- like pipeline, this is the very first moment where Lori Strode gets to be a human being again since the opening yeah. of Halloween 1. And just like slowly let herself heal. And there was such beauty in that. And I wanted just like a little bit more of that before it was wrenched out. And uh, mm-hmm. I haven't seen ends yet just because I've got my own headcanon for what happens after Halloween kills. Like it, in my mind, like the granddaughter just gets brutally murdered by Michael. And Judy Greer goes crazy on a war path. And then suddenly Lori is left to have to not only take out Michael Myers, which is the obvious threat, but also stop her daughter from becoming Michael Myers because the whole point of Halloween Kills is to point out how we all have the pension as human beings to just, like, surrender Mm -hmm. ourselves to some sort of unknown perversion and become something inhuman and, like, completely vile. And just, I don't know, I want to see, like, Lori rescue her daughter from that. That would have been a really fucking cool idea, but I don't know. Maybe Ends is actually good. I, I don't know. I haven't seen it. I won't comment on that, but I'll say that is a fantabulous movie that has not been made, that could still be made, but (laughs) is not not what that movie is about. But uh, I would have have signed up with bells on and like a Halloween mask on to to see that movie because I deeply wish, as a Halloween show defender, my favorite in the whole Halloween franchise, actually, uh, I, I just wish they did more with her relationship with her daughter and granddaughter. Yeah, Strode Strong probably. was not very strong. Strode Strong was... Uh, <laughs> it was it was kind of sidelined for a lot of it. And I was like, yeah. but why? And also, Judy Greer is so 
fucking good. And why are you not using this lady more? I I don't understand. I just have you ever? I have uh, to ask. Have you ever seen Cursed? Cursed? No. What is that? Uh, So I won't spoil it, but it is a movie that came out in 2004, also written by Kevin Williamson and directed by Wes Craven, and it stars. I wouldn't say what, but Judy Greer is one of the leading characters and Ooh. not very good CGI, but there's a moment in it that <laughs> you think you'll see it and you'll be like, oh my God. It's like a final act moment. Uh, there are some kind of monsters in it. That's all I'll say. And Judy Greer just okay. steals the show. And I'm like, after that, I was like, did you see what just happened? <laughs> is she not a bigger <laughs> horror presence? But we'll let it go. We'll let it go. Judy Greer just needs to be like, I I think she has shirts where it's just like Judy Greer is like the greatest in the world and like nobody recognizes it. Like, I feel like Judy Greer needs what Brendan Fraser got last year. She needs her greer Assange. It's like yes. She needs an Oscar, basically. We need to start the Judy Greer campaign. Yes, please. Okay, so last movie. And this is one that I'm interested to talk to you about because okay. you you strike me. I did y'all know. Did y'all know Okay, we're gonna we're talking about SLC on. We're talking about <laughs> SLC Punk by James Meridino. and Bob. They were the only two punks living in Salt Lake City. We come from the east. What the hell are you? We're, uh, we're from England. (laughs) England. That's probably why we seem so weird to you, man. Their only way to understand the world was to be totally misunderstood. And when you're living in the most conservative city in America, do you A, conform? This rebellion things you're going through, I, I, I understand it, not completely, but uh, I respect it. B, learn to cope. I am the future. I am the future of this great nation. Stephen, I didn't, I didn't sell out, son. I bought in. Or C. Is he going to be okay? Oh, yeah, he'll be fine, I'm sure. Thank you, though. None of the above. <laughs> Aladdin, and this is my lamp. I wished for you, and here you are. Bob was in love. You're like a poet, dude. I just started thinking, you know, Salt Lake ain't that bad. I know, no, no, I mean, I know it sucks and all, but, you know, this is like, this is like home, you know? Matthew Lillard, star of Scream and She's All That. (laughs) And Michael Gorgian in a film about living life. If I knew what was ahead of me, I may have stayed in bed. Life is like that. Never have so many of Satan's followers been amassed on the earth as there are now. What? And getting out alive. Six, six, six. The mark will be on all of them. Oh, my God! With attitude. Go, go, go! I told you those boys were trouble. What's your major going to be? I want to save the rainforest. Somebody's got to fight for them. Salt Lake City Punk. Did y'all know that Cass is in a horror punk cover band? <laughs> uh, I didn't well until people. yesterday. <laughs> oh, I haven't gone to practice in like a year. Pandemic been weird. You, that's all I'll say. But uh, yeah. what do you play? Do you play guitar, do you play guitar or bass? I couldn't tell. I, I, you know what? I like that you get bass vibes for me. That's like a goal, like right up there. Like one day, cool as Judy Greer. One day, cool that I give like bass vibe players. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, I, I play rhythm guitar. That's my sweet spot. Nice. So I guess kind of a, it's a version of the bass, but uh, its own thing. 
Yeah. No, yeah. I, I do the same thing. I love it. I don't want to be the center stage. I just want to support everyone else. <laughs> yeah. I just like jamming power chords. I like dropping it to drop D and taking my pointer finger and just sliding it across the thing and maybe doing some noodling, but mm-hmm. chunky stuff. I like I like guitars. Yeah, I like the I'm a big fan of the this like the having really fun with the strumming patterns. My fingers because I play like in the in the band Lady in the Radiator, I play mostly electric guitar. So uh, my fingers don't like that going up and down because we do so many misfit covers because we're like a <laughs> punk goth rock cover band. So there's a lot of fast songs where I'm just like the blisters get blisters eventually, and then it's like I have no feeling, so it's fine. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I just lo- I love strumming. I uh, also love like doing acoustic guitar stuff for like that same reason. I'm just like I love finger picking. I think it's just so fun. I love melodies. Oh, yeah, same. Mm-hmm. So did you get into punk music first or are you getting into this movie first? I was always a little punk kid. <laughs> My first album I got when I was 13 and it was the Buzzcocks. So. Fuck yeah. Yeah. Always into punk. I was into it. Just loved it. I. It's funny too because like my first guitar I got, I was a little bit older than 13 probably closer to like 15 but it was an acoustic guitar and i tried i trained i had guitar lessons i didn't like trade um i i took acoustic guitar for i don't know a good good decade or so but like very casually very much like i was like hey i really like this artist eva cassidy who's like bluesy song jazzy stuff and like i just want to finger pick and chill down here in my basement but all the stuff i listened to was very punky like for whatever reason in my head i never had the correlation of like what i listened to i must also learn how to obsessively play uh but then later in life uh one of my beloved friends cj who has always like been in one or in some sort of rotation band situation was like we need an uh, like a rhythm guitarist i'm like um i don't know like i don't really play this music but i love all the music that we listen to uh and he was like well you know you already know the song like it won't be that hard for you to figure out the melody i was like oh that's a great point so (laughs) then like later on in life i was like oh sure i'll do it um and and it's good because i also think something that is super underrated about punk. I don't want to get too much into this because I, I, I want to talk about SLC punk so badly. But with punk music, uh, the skill comes with it from being able to play very quickly but seamlessly to not fumble. And that was such an interesting thing to get used to because I mostly played like folk, folky, bluesy stuff. So it's like not like it's not hard technically, but is not like the tempo isn't as quick. And that was like a new thing for me to, to get over. Like, yeah, the chord progressions aren't very complex. I'm going to play the same three chords in different, maybe five chords in different variations, but very, very quickly where like other songs, like there's a bit more of different patterns to it. Um, and so that was, that was pretty rad. Cause like, Oh, this is cool. Punk is punk is hard. Everybody don't, don't shouldn't punk just cause there's like three chords. <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying like the amount of carpal tunnel you get from holding what oh you all don't gosh. see on the podcast from like middle my middle finger, finger. <laughs> middle fucking finger. Imagine yes. holding the middle finger straight for about three minutes mm-hmm. or you mm-hmm. could do an entire album in 20 minutes if you're playing Ramon's shit or mm-hmm. probably Misfits shit too. But you're holding this the entire time and your wrist, it just, the amount of lactic acid you can build up in 20 seconds is astonishing to people. It's insane. That's why I'm like, I'm not a, 
I'll go back to brand band practice at some point. But yeah, the thing that got me the most was the wrist, the like the the like wrist cramps because it's like for the most part my fingers eventually you, you can like condition your fingers, but you'll get to a point where like. <laughs> Because of how, at least the way I hold, like I'm, a, I'm not necessarily like the best with it. Like I'll like crank my wrist up a little bit too much. So like you're cutting off circulation. So after a certain point, you're like, <laughs> I like no training is going to make this better unless I get better at holding my wrist up. But my like, wrist is so bent that it's like, I just need to take a break for a second <laughs> or like I'll it's stop the song like, and be like, oh God. I don't have the biggest hands in the world too. Yeah. So like sometimes you do have to like do this and then That's when it gets stuck do. on your yeah. wrist, you have to like shimmy it out a little bit and then get back to it. God, it, it, it's difficult. So SLC Punk is, I think I heard somebody use this movie as like an insult on TikTok the other day. How dare they? It's like somebody, I, I think it was somebody like, oh, of course, this sounds like the kind of guy who would get his politics from just watching SLC Punk once and then just <laughs> devoting to it for its their oh. entire life. Uh, oh, yeah. I found this movie to be a little bit like train spotting in the sense uh-huh. that you're like highlighting a subculture and then sort of showing the disillusionment with that subculture and its rules. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a great against me song called "I Was a Teenage Anarchist," yes! which just yes! feels like it was like this was the prototype for late. that song. Yeah. And uh, there's also a part. There's a movie called "Lords of Chaos," which I How found I deliciously. It's a great movie about this uh, real, I think, story of mayhem. This band who's like lead singer, like they were basically oh, wow. legit burning churches, legit burning oh, churches. Wow. But Norwegian the way black that jo- okay, okay. Norwegian black metal, yes. Yeah, so there's a way okay. that Jonas Ackerlund directs this where he's partially taking the piss out of these kids that are in that subculture and thinking that they're so tough and badass. And I don't know, something about that sort of like taking the piss out of somebody who is trying so hard to get tough and sort of present mm. this like unshakable front to the world that just uh, really appeals to me. And I found that the ways that Matthew Lillard, both in this and in Scream, so I guess Love the cast him. has something from Matthew <laughs> Lillard, which I mean, who the I fuck do. doesn't? I mean, I could also have added 13 ghosts to this list, but please, I I, have, <laughs> I can't. I can't have him dominate everything in my life, but yes. Sorry. <laughs> I... I like that I, th- I think this is probably one of my favorite Lillard roles just because he has that great balance between totally yes. being entrenched in sort of the punk world it's yep. silliness also being self-aware of his role within it all and also just being like this average like this guy who kind of gets it like he's so close to kind of breaking himself free of the punk mold and trying to just embrace what the world actually is as opposed to what he yeah. wants to be. I don't know. Like, why do you like this movie so much? Again, it ages so well, but because I think, I I guess in, in some ways, all of these films are like, um, in a certain light of coming, maybe not a coming of age film, but like a coming to a realization film that like just hits differently as you get older. But I think for this one, um, well, one, if we're gonna talk about Lillard for a second, I really think this is one of the best film roles in his entire filmography because similar to what you're saying, like they just let him be a bit toned down. Like we we know, we know Lillard can go up to 11. We know that. And he's so good at that. He can do it on a dime. He knows when to do that. He also knows when to contrast this with other people that get more 
serious or dour roles like him playing off jason siegel for example like jason siegel is is playing so down so he amplifies so up and together it's 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 just vastly entertaining because the contrast is so cool Oh, but and I then think the contrast whenever he's uh, hanging out with Mark because they have to present Mark yes. as this crazy fucking character, and so yes. he's getting to go back and let Mark yes. take over with his weird like Christian Slater's school shooter vibes. Yes, yes, I was just gonna say like the Mark contrast as well like flips on its head where we get to see him be a bit more uh, calculated. But I also think like for me that really what really hits me is how his monologues work because at the start of the film his monologue is just like hey dude and it feels a bit like oh yes very little bill and teddy and kind of silly um and entertaining and fun and cool uh but as it goes on the monologues take on this different shape of life like it does feel like his character as he's recounting what he's telling us about how things are, how things work. The rules are breaking down around him. He's seeing that. He's trying to process that. And so you get these like little layers of like doubt and hesitation and confusion in his delivery, which is just like, come on. It's just, it's so good. And I feel like a lot of the time Lillard's just not given these roles to, to showcase that talent that he also has. Yeah. So like, that's like a huge reason why, love this film but i think as far as like the big reason why i like slc punk i just think that well from the musical standpoint i hate the idea that you have to look a certain way to belong to a subculture of music or interest (laughs) like i half the time look like a high school jock and i'm like deeply in love with horror i don't have to like go out and get like five thousand freddy tattoos to be fair if you have five thousand freddy tattoos awesome i love that for you i don't need to have them (laughs) to also be guaranteed a spot in the horror community and i like that this film is discussing that because these are things that like when you're like especially like in high school in that era it's like so important to like physically present how your interests are and then as you get older like those things change for a lot of reasons and it doesn't necessarily have to be about like your value systems in life although sometimes it is um and it gets murky like i feel like the questions get more about like like what I like that this film tackles too is like what's more important like how punk Lillard's character is being or like what does it mean to become a lawyer and how does that stand up for your values like if you're if punk is about the values about being then like how do you express that and the things that you do and not just how you present and I just think that's such a lovely lesson because like I don't want anyone necessarily to look at what someone does to make a paycheck and or how they look to get to that job to be like this is your entire personality i think that's deeply flawed um you know what i mean yeah it's uh in one way you could say like oh people with colored hair like why are you trying to be a lawyer like that's clearly not the reasoning here but it's also yeah. i guess uh i i think so much i love against me by the way like one of my favorite bands yeah. But uh, she says something in that line of, like, uh, the scene got too rigid. It was a mob mentality. They had the rifle sights on me. Like, because yes. I didn't fit with their, quote, narrow visions of autonomy. You want me to surrender mm-hmm. my identity? I was a teenage anarchist, but the revolution mm-hmm. was a lie. Because all you yes. want to do is just create another form of government. One of my yes. favorite fucking scenes in this movie, and it highlights that sort of doubt and insecurity. Uh, he goes on the essay about the fight. Which is so fucking funny to me. I love Miradino like throwing these in, like these weird like almost uh, 
You can imagine them like in a school classroom. They, these little slideshow like PowerPoints of like what this explanation is. Mm-hmm. And as Lillard's talking about how the fight, like the era of the, the essence of the fight and like power is like control and power is government and we don't want government, which is against what I have. And what does this all mean? He just goes, yes. I don't fucking know. And then immediately kicks back into the punk show. Like it's yes. that realization like if i really were to follow this rabbit tail i realized that my value system makes no fucking sense mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. myself and mm-hmm. not to not in the sense that like this is a james Meridino trying to explain why anarchy is bullshit this is the character coming to a realization that like the things that i believed don't make sense to me and how do I reckon that? And how do I change? Like, and if I were to change my value system, what does that say about me? Does that say that I'm an inauthentic person, or mm-hmm. does me lying to myself about it make me inauthentic? I, I, yeah. I love that. Yeah, I think 100. percent And I also think that it's like, it's also bringing the scene aspect of that as well, right? Like, am I allowed to be a part of a scene or a part, when I say scene, like especially in the music scene, like uh, a subculture that has generally X, Y, and Z, what we think about how everyone generally feels, right? Like actually asking those questions, like, well, what do we actually feel and value in in this sub-community and can we exist liking the same things and having differing value systems. Like when people say things like the horror community or the punk community, like Lillard's character stumbles upon breaking that down because he's like, I actually, if I don't know what I believe, how do I actually know what the scene believes? I know what the scene is talking about, but I, if I don't know that for myself, then I don't actually know what it is to be punk. And I feel like the the message, at least for me with this movie is like, if you're anti-authoritarian, anti like fascism, pro like radical empathy and pro like individualism the scene makes no sense but also that's okay (laughs) like you don't need the scene doesn't need to be a dogma that's that's the problem um but i love that like that's a good line the scene doesn't need to be a dogma yeah it's not dogma yeah no but that but you know we've all felt some some level of that within things that we like or interested in and i love that the character in his own way makes his peace with that and he's just like you know what is punk rock like just like living understanding the systems as much as you can that you're living within and trying to be an authentic person within these systems and maybe that's where the punk rock lived all along and it's like yeah maybe it's hokey but i think that's actually pretty cool (laughs) yeah i've uh there's definitely a part of this movie that's, and especially like in the opening credits, you get all of these uh, these great credits where like the actors oh, yes. are plastered onto album covers that represent like uh, punk punk covers of the day. Like you'll have mm-hmm. your stuff that looks like Bad Brains, and you'll have your shit that looks like Black Flag, and mm-hmm. you know some of the Clash albums and whatnot. But uh, there's like this, I guess the musical angle of it, which he rails against at the beginning because he's like, it's not about the music, it's about the value system, I'm like, okay, you're getting there, but you're still also, like, so heavily reliant on this uniform. Even as friends around you, like, Jason Siegel looks like a nerd, but he, I guess Love is, his like... I, <laughs> I'm not sure if he's punk or if he's just got a lot of unresolved anger issues, which I think very he's, deeply I think concerns punk, me. If he's punk in his heart, he's punk. But, yeah, he takes thrashing to a different level. Take it down I worry a little bit about Jason Siegel here. <laughs> 
Jason Segel yeah. just seems like he needs anger management to me in this movie. I, I worry about yeah. him a little bit. No one will ever uh, believe me, but I one I once met Jason Segel in the pandemic walking his dog we both had masks on and i know i know that it was him because um his mask was slightly lowered and our dogs were saying hi to each other and i looked up and like i mean i've seen enough jason segal movies to know like what he looks like uh, i mean i caught his eye and i go oh and i saw his face go like Ugh! and i was just like yeah your dog's pretty cute and i just that's all i said <laughs> i just dropped oh, and i saw him literally sweet. just go like like a deep breath and I was like oh, the man. star sighting no one will believe but I know it was him and like man I, I will think about that to the end of my days he was walking a dog called Buster and I was just like what a what a cool that's dude so I felt cute. like so cool <laughs> no that's like that reminds me of the thing that uh that one video of like near Leonardo DiCaprio like grabbing his phone and like sprinting up to Jonah Hill acting like a fan <laughs> and you see Jonah just like recoil in terror it just yeah. i don't know that kind of shit like it breaks my heart i understand but like mm-hmm. yeah it, it it's sad yes jason siegel uh, seems like it is does did he seem like a nice guy like generally he just seemed he just seemed honestly like such uncle vibes of just being like i'm just like on my daily walk with this dog buster and just like whatever man like he just seemed very chill very sweet so yeah uncle vibes That's, i dig that <laughs> yeah 100 percent cool dude from what i can tell um, but yeah, I think um, this movie is just so fantastic. I. <sighs> what do we think yeah. about Bob? I'm interested in Bob just because like, like the opening is, of course, like he punches the yeah. mirror and he gets infected and he doesn't want to fix himself. But it's like, what do you think the reasons for him like hating yeah. the mirror are? I I haven't quite sat with that yet. <laughs> I think this could be me reading into it too much, but I think like if we're talking about, <laughs> to quote myself in this podcast, uh, if like the scene is not the dogma, right? Like it doesn't have to be. I think Bob is someone who deeply believed in a certain aesthetic and a certain like way of dressing, presenting what songs to listen to, who to talk to, who not to talk to. And like when they start like seeing the consequences of living this unstable life like they're like yeah we're not gonna work for the man it's like well, you need income you need food like you need to figure yeah. out like what what levels to the man you're gonna live with and and how how do you deal with those feelings and i feel like bob wanted to exist in a structure of world that isn't and so like confronted with that i think he just chose like um the death of the ego, the death of the self as, as a kind of way to resolve that. Um, I don't think I, I feel a bit complicated about, I think the drugs, the way, the way that he dies, I, I don't think it's just very tragic. Cause like, yeah, I don't necessarily know if that was when he planned for that to happen. Um, but I do think that he was on a path that like given like the whole like looking to mirror off in symbols and films and, and whatnot as like staring staring at yourself in the mirror, reflecting it under your place in the, your individualism in society. I think he was just being like coming to that realization and instead of making any kind of compromise, he was just like, no, there is no compromise. This, this I cannot be if, if I do that. Um, so that was kind of my read on that. And that's where I think it kind of dovetails into the whole 
sellout culture of the film. Like, what does that mean to sell out? And yeah. I think, mm, again, and also I think that the film ages so well is like, it's easy to say sellout culture if you're looking at society as if it's something that you can beat without acknowledging privilege and levels of income to sell out you could also say is to like make compromises to survive but within levels that you're comfortable with making and that kind of subtlety and nuance is stuff that like the whole film is about like um yeah i I just yeah uh can we shout out the guy from happy gilmore in this like his dad is just like really like he has such a good bead on matt lillard like and trying to kind of get a hold of like he knows exactly who this person is yes what is on he's like i didn't i didn't sell out i was like i sold up i bought in i bought in in. yes like so like i think the film does a good job of showing levels of how to exist in a capitalistic society which is not sustainable and frankly dehumanizing and that's a sad thing to come to face with i think that's what bob is i think that's honestly why bob is so disheartened is because he's just like this is just really tragic and he's feeling for himself but feeling for everybody in the system and he just has such a big heart and nothing nowhere to place all that stuff uh so he's it's so tragic but i think like his uh matthew lillard's dad is like the epitome of like what nobody wants to be and and realizing like you don't have to be that if you get like a nine to five job. Like you don't have to be like an evil no. executive. Like that's not necessarily the only choice. Um, but I like that they included him in there and these, these conversations of sell culture to get at those ideas. There's that weird, uh, actually is there like the funny line that he mentions like, Oh, I can do like a lot more damage inside the system than I can outside of it. And so I always wondered kind of like how we got a train spotting sequel. I always wondered like, I'm wondering now, like, I know that Meridino did a sequel to SLC Punk, but I don't know if he follows the same characters, but I would like a kind of, like, 20 years, like, how, because... I would love what that. Was it, what was it? Lillard's narration in this movie starts as though it's kind of like, uh, I can't believe, like, Dante going through the Inferno, describing, like, what it's like to be part of this. Like, it's a present tense, and then you find out later in the movie that, it no, it's from a narrator that has, is telling you the past. And, like, Mm -hmm. how far in the past we have, because he mentions, like, he and Brandy got married, and he's a lawyer now, and I'm like, do we talk about, like, 10 years, 15 years? What is his reflection on himself at that moment? It's like, sure, I became a poser, but, like, I want to know, like, what he, quote, unquote, bought into. Like, is he just, yeah. a, like, a furious, like, what was it? I watched All the Beauty and the Bloodshed the other day, and there's this lawyer who did this case pro bono to try and help uh, this uh, protest group, like, rise against the Sackler family who owns Pfizer and mm-hmm. uh, basically led the opioid crisis with their marketing of OxyContin and whatever. But, like, is he mm-hmm. that kind of lawyer? Somebody that's mm-hmm. working, like, in behind the scenes to really, like, revolutionize change? Like, I, I don't know, I, I want all of that. And I guess the movie does really good in, like, letting the snarkiness of that punk character mature a little bit, but still mm. stay there. Again, it's a great balancing act from Lillard. I think it, it, it yeah. might just be my favorite of his, frankly. Yeah, I would love to see what he was like 20 years later. Because I also think like the 
the strength of the film is that it's it commits to being like I don't have the answers because if I was to have the answers to feed to the audience then I'm again giving you a different kind of dogma or scene to subscribe to I'm not going to do that you have to figure out your own way through this here's just yeah. my yeah. my journey which is a pretty cool and I think that a a film like 20 years later it would be interesting just to see like the other choices he made and how he felt about that uh, so like I'm all for that that'd be lovely how do you feel about yourself as like, so like if you're teenage Matt Lillard and you're narrating your own life, like what do you think you'd choose to talk about? Hmm. It's interesting. Cause I think I had the opposite trajectory where like I studied like writing and editing in school and I was like, I can't make a living off of art. And then I went into like nonprofit world and for like three and a half years. And then I was like, I'm going to do like project management in an IT company for two years. And then the pandemic happened and I was like, screw it. I'm just going to full time commit to my art for the next three years, which I have done. And I, I somehow do, but I also feel like I, um, it's, it's hard. It's physically hard, but I think that teenage me would be like, cool but adult me is just like but all these things and like this and that and like oh no like thinking about like all these like levels of just like planning ahead for like different aspects of life for now and to come but teenage me i think would be like oh you're pretty rad and i'd be like you don't know anything teenage you like I, like do you know how to even read a mortgage like do you know what it's like to rent and teenage me would be like no but it sounds real cool and it's like oh jesus was there anything that you were struggling with back then that like you'd be mm. like if you were looking at the story of your life you'd be like all right this is kind of like the moment in life when i like i thought this way and i started uh, kind of like making this shift uh, and now as an adult can talk about it with some sort of clarity or at least some sort of uh experience and understanding yeah that's a great question i hmm Yeah, you know what? I mean, it's not. It's it seems like a surface level answer, but I, I do think that like like most teenagers, like I tend I tended to judge a book by its cover and kind of look to anyone that didn't seem to wear all their interests on their sleeves as someone who was maybe like not not having interests or hobbies or into music or art or anything where it's like, you don't know, you can't tell. And it, but I do think I kind of was a definitely a little bit of a little scene punk in that way. Like, I don't think I ever called anyone out on it, but I do think I would make calculated assumptions to be like, if I didn't see you wearing a band t-shirt in high school, I would just assume that you go home and you watch American Idol. You know what? Sure. Maybe you like American Idol, but also like people contain multitudes. And I think as an adult, I get that now. And I'm like, I don't assume anything and I just go off what people tell me and getting to know them. But I think it's, it's easy when you uh, have a mushy developing brain to just go by what you think is right <laughs> at all times. <laughs> mushy develop mushy developing brain is a great name for like a punk album. By the way. There we go. <laughs> like Coming it. 2024 mushy developing brain. <laughs> I fucking dug it. Well, hey Cass, this is a lot of fun. This is Cass Clark. In Thank four you. films, everybody. Uh, just let the folks know where they can find you. 
Sure. So for as long as Twitter's still alive, you can find me at Cass Clark on Twitter. You can also follow me on my website, Cassandra Ash. Ash has like fire. <laughs> CassandraAshClark.com has links to my podcast appearances and episodes, my writing, and my eventually uh, pre-order links for my upcoming queer horror novella, The Caretaker from Harris Green Press. Fuck yeah. I knew we couldn't yeah. leave here without talking about the caretaker. That I'm, I'm fucking stoked for that one. It's gonna be great. It's gonna uh, be dark. <laughs> ooh, I forgot. I ask. I I started asking people this question before, and I'm really excited. Mm. I'm stealing this from James Lipton. <laughs> if God exists, oh, Jesus. what would you want them? <laughs> what would you want them to say to you when you reach the pearly gates? I love that I get to go to the pearly gates. That's pretty rad. But it's like, I don't have, like that's not, I don't even have to ask that. Like, I'm getting entrance. Um, if I go to the pearly gates and God exists, what would I want God to say to me? Well, assuming they have divine omniscience, I'm not, oh, whatever, divine vision, hmm. and they've seen everything that has happened in my entire life. <laughs> I want them to somehow know one of the most pettiest, like silliest things that always bugged me about an argument that like I was always just like, I think I was right, but maybe not. But like, I'm pretty sure I was right. But they like dive into that and they, they find it like I can't even remember it because I live, let's say, 80 years. And they're just like they whisper like, remember when like so and so said this and you're convinced that you were right. But, you know, you're like, maybe not. I, I, I don't know everything that like God just bent down. It's just like, you're right. And I'm like, yeah! <laughs> <laughs> oh, that'd be delightful. <laughs> I'm already in heaven, so like, I can be as spiteful as I need to be for that one moment. That's great. <laughs> if God is also a petty bitch, I would love. That. I mean, if he is okay with sending people to hell, I mean, let's be real. Oh, judgments have been God's, made. Judgments have been made. Of, of, co of course, God, God, hold, God holds grudge clearly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I guess, what theme song would you want us to close you out? We close every. I, we, I close every. I close every episode out with a song. What's your theme song? Oh, oh, okay. Hold on. I think I think I know it. Um, oh yes, I would like Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds playing "Red Right Hand Baby." Fuck yeah, let's do it. <laughs> All right, from me and Cass, take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Seriously, take take fucking care yes, of each please. other. We yeah. please do. And take care of the movies. See you around. Where the viaduct looms like a bird of doom as it should.